Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. This is episode 108. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So, hey Otterites, uh, this is a Our Heroes episode. We are going to work Dwight David Eisenhower. But before we get to that, making his internet debut, sort of, uh, or it's an international his, debut, really. Yeah, his podcast debut, anyway, is Wilson the Wonder Doodle. He's oh, right here. How wonderfully phrased, sir. So, uh, this is our, our new, what do they call it, F1B Mini Golden Doodle. Um, I'm sure the guys are looking at me with disdain for having a designer dog. Well, no, well. he's cute, though. Yeah. Cute in dog world, cute does a lot. Yes, it, it forgives a lot of sins. Yes. yes. So he's itty bitty little He's dude. the newest fur baby. Yep. And uh, the story behind the name Wilson is, of course, for Tim Wilson. Uh, you know, we're all big fans. Amen. And uh, the story is that we were kicking around different names, but uh, right before we uh, put down the deposit on him, we had some plumbing problems. We had to get our plumber in. And uh, he's, he's a guy that's worked for us for years and years, uh, replaced all the uh, pipes in, uh, with pecs in uh, the old Studio M and two water heaters and all that kind of thing. But he works by himself. So I was, uh, you know, we knew that he wouldn't be able to come and see us for a couple of days. So I was giving uh, Mrs. Martin a little bit of the uh, Tim Wilson well, we're covered up. We got all we can do. We lose money on your job. <laughs> so that she uh, suddenly popped up and said, "I know. We'll name him Wilson." And that's that's how great Mrs. Martin is. Really imbued with the spirit of snakes and otters these days. See, and when you t- first told me Wilson, first thing my mind went to was Tim Allen's uh, neighbor peeking yes. over the fence. Yes, well, beats the hell out of Woodrow Wilson for goodness' sake. Oh yeah. God, yes. Yeah. So there's uh, there's the volleyball. Uh, in the Tom Hanks movie, we have to say, no, it's not for that. And no, it's not for Tim Allen's neighbor. And no, it's not for the guy at work whose last name is Wilson. Uh, it is for Tim Wilson, the comedian. Uh, old old school, we've talked about this a lot of times, old school road dog type comedian. Um, so, but he's such an adorable little furball. Uh, kind of this apricot color with a kind uh, of a liver colored nose and blue eyes. And a little white spot on his head. And he's only about five pounds right now. So, he is, he's uh, Mrs. Martin's new bestest buddy. So, <clears throat> how's that, buddy? Did you make your debut? Give me a kiss. Mwah. Okay. Dwight Eisenhower. So, uh, I think Francis mentioned it in the What's Next. But, yes, this was somebody that I really desperately wanted to, to work on. And here comes Mrs. Martin now to pick up Wilson. Um, Bye, Wilson. Goodbye, doggy. <laughs> and, and listeners, here's the fun part about all of this: that uh, Robert and I are big dog fellas, and and uh, Wilson's not the first canine buddy to appear uh, mm-hmm. on the podcast. Uh, Mar- uh, Robert's dog uh, Bosco. Has made numerous appearances because he's yes. big enough to push open the double doors to the atrium. He is, at, yes. At Studio R. But Francis, on the other hand, 
is not that big of a puppy guy. No. Not um, so much. No. Not so much. Now, now, they have a family dog. We do, yes. And... But no, you said family dog. <laughs> not necessarily his dog. It, yes, it is Mrs. Francis's dog. Uh, very much but so. that dog loves his daddy. Her well, daddy. Yes, her yes, daddy. And, does, yes. and the best part is, for all you brown coats, for all you fans of Firefly, the dog's name is Inara. Yes. Yeah, named after yeah, from Firefly. Because when we got her, that it, that it was it was a mourning process uh, after the show had ended. And my daughters in particular were just loved, absolutely loved the show. And uh, we were really into that at the time. So... Uh, uh, one of the one, if not both of them, came up with that. oh, well, it's got to be that. And if we had gotten, they, and at the time they lobbied hard for a second male dog similar to be called Mal. <coughs> Fortunately, that, <laughs> that never happened. So that's that's. Uh, I love that little window. Bosco, Wilson, and Anara. Yep. And and yeah. So you brown coats can appreciate Francis. That's right. Now, since you guys both gave the story naming your dogs, you know, uh, we were. Kind of trying to go with a name for for our dog, and yeah, came batted around a bunch of different ones. But Mrs. Robert, just as she came up with uh, the name for our, our, our my spawn for the boy, uh, she came up with the perfect name for the dog, and she came up with Bosco after uh, the saint, uh, Saint John Bosco. So it's a much more mundane story than yours. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it is what it, it works. Is. It works. Absolutely. That's right. Well, we're covered up. We got all we can do. That's right. So, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes. 34th President of the United States. And, of course, uh, this is an appropriate moment to talk about Dwight Eisenhower because of this is our uh, stretch of World War II episodes. He's the supreme commander of the uh, uh, forces that invade Normandy. And we're just a couple of weeks from publishing our, our Normandy episode there. Um. <clears throat> But as a hero, um, and I think even in the 70s, Ronald Reagan in his radio addresses uh, talked about this idea of, well, you know, Dwight was a nice guy. Uh, he was sort of this amiable golf player that sort of, you know, just sort of watched the store for a while in the 50s hmm. until things really picked up. Uh, under the energetic John Kennedy. And I think when Reagan put a pin in that in the 70s, I think he was right on the money. Oh, absolutely. Um, I grant you, Eisenhower had the phenomenal foresight or luck, depending on how you want to look at it, to be president during the greatest expansion of our economy uh, known to us at that time, and probably still to this day. Uh, because we were the only uh, economy in the, the industrialized world that was left standing. After yeah, the war, absolutely. yeah. So we were able to take great advantage of that and become dominant economically uh, uh, throughout the world. You know, as as I phrase it in my blog post, www.snakesandotters.com. Nice, good one. Liked it. Liked it. Liked it. Liked it. Liked it. Eisenhower is is at this moment of facing a unique set of challenges that no American president had ever faced. Yes, yes, very true. Um, so, again, that's, uh, to me, that's another thing that really puts a pin in this whole idea of, well, everything was going great, and he just kind of played golf at Augusta and hung out, kept an eye on the store. No, he ends a war in Korea. By true. threatening the use of nuclear weapons. 
but at the same time keeps the nuclear genie in the bottle. Yes, and did not like the fact that we had used the weapons against Japan. He did not want us to be the first to have used them. Yeah. He saw the value in, in the ability to, okay, nu- nuclear weapons reduce the number of divisions that I have to maintain, and they're cheaper, so I can cut defense spending, but at the same time, he's riding this wave of history and where he's the first president with these weapons really pointed at us. Right. He's got to navigate a post-world world where a a thing that could have made war possible now makes more than world war possible. It now makes the destruction of whole civilizations possible. Um, Bad business. Yeah, so he's really, he's got to confront a, a world that can destroy itself in a manner no other world leader has ever done in history. Oh, and by the way, at the same time, he's in a technology race with this adversary. Yes. At the same time, he's he's riding this technological wave of change and how to make it work. He's uh, trying to make sure that that economy keeps ticking so that the uh, uh, the dreams of these men who have fought this war and have now come home come true. Which he shepherded, of course. So he has their best interest in heart. Yes, very much. Very so much. he recognizes that the world has changed forever because of those men he led. Just, you know, not even, a, you know, less than 10 years. Yeah. And... Oh, by the way, in addition to all of that, he also just won the war as really the leading general of the whole thing. Right. Well, yeah, because he would have gotten the blame if something went wrong, so it's only right that he gets the credit when it didn't. Well, and he does get the credit. I mean, he he does achieve the the rank of five-star general. That's a very rare thing. And he deserves it. Um, Yeah. He's a... He doesn't have a ton of combat commands in his past. Right. But he, uh, he missed have, out on World War One, which he very uh, he very much regretted and was a little bitter about at times uh, yes. early on because yes. that was the thing everybody wanted to get a command uh, over there. It's a very short war for the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. He never got a chance to come overseas. Never really ended up in France. Um, he uh, he did have commands, but they were more like a training command mm-hmm. here uh, back in the U.S. Um, but he, he has this incredibly varied military experience. Um, one of the things he was involved with was this motorcade across the U.S. to explore, well, what can motorized transport really do? And what he finds, of course, is that the roads are terrible. And you can't really make serious progress across the country in these newfangled Horseless carriages. Yes, because he was born in the 1800s. Yes, 1890. 1890s. And that would eventually then lead to another signature accomplishment. Right. The The interstates. The interstate highway system. There's a reason it's called the the Dwight Eisenhower interstate highway system. It it was was everything. Yeah, it was the most visionary uh, product out of venture to say of his entire presidency and despite himself he, he, he his vision was not for what it became to us uh, to be the absolute pinnacle of interstate and inter you know, intercontinental basically mm-hmm. across intracontinental it wasn't it wasn't meant to be 
Com- uh, commerce based. Exactly. Yes. And yet it and yet it is we couldn't survive without it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the world could right. not. It was meant as a defense because he learned from what he saw in Germany with the Autobahn. The Autobahn also was not meant for commerce. It was meant to transport tanks. That's why it's such a good road. It is meant to hold a crap ton of weight. Yeah, it's meant to move military resources, and he also envisioned it as, in the atomic age, we may have to evacuate cities. We've got to have roads to do that. But it ended up being this thing that, in my opinion, knitted our country together in such a way that nothing else ever has. Well, that's a very good way of putting that, sir. You're exactly right. You could take the interstate to the south. You could take the interstate to the west. You could take the interstate to the north. Well, so what? There's well, no more. Sir, you could vi- you could visit any other part of the country without totally disrupting your life to do it. In other words, you didn't have to move to California to visit California. That's right. Unlike or, in the prior or, century, or take forever to get there, or take forever uh, to and, get there. And air, air travel was still somewhat, you know, it. Very much an infancy. Infancy yeah. in many ways. It was, and it was still going to be expensive. Exactly. Yes. It was The elites could do it, yeah. but most general people could yeah. not. Well, and I would argue also that uh, it, it's not just, it's it's a both end. Um, you know, television along with the interstate system would have done the, the lion's work of knitting the country together in that new yeah. way. Yeah, it, 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 in many respects, it destroyed a huge amount of the tribalism that we had fought with since the very beginning. A very great way to phrase it. That's what I was trying to get to. The regional tribalism that we have, south versus north versus west, uh, that disappears very quickly. State versus federal, that disappears pretty quickly. Well, now, it, It's no. never going to go away. It's still here. But... It has damped down considerably. Certainly, the Federals won in the fifties because you know of the landmark decisions: Brown versus the Board of U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, US Brown versus the Board, Board of Education, of education. Uh, and the other uh, civil rights uh, victories yes. that were won by his administration. Yes, and, and again, another landmark achievement is that work complete. You can say no, of course it wasn't, but it's never going to be complete. He he signed no, the first civil rights legislation. Since 1875. Right. Uh, yeah, that's huge. He, and the, and he it, sent the National Guard to make sure Little Rock schools were integrated. He forced the integration of the armed services. Right. He threatened to withhold money from the armed services. And he basically told the Secretary of the Navy, who was kind of like, well, you know, we have kind of all these southern ports and we might not. Enter. He said, no, not one step back. If we're spending government money, then it has to be for all the people. And that established yet another principle that uh, goes to today, and is that the government can dictate the terms if they're footing the bill. Yep. Good, for good or ill. Uh, sometimes for ill. Uh, but Because, you know, anybody with power can be overbearing and too authoritarian. It is a danger of giving power to any group, not just the federal government. It's like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, well, I believe we've heard that before. <laughs> so you think about, oh, yeah, just the country just kind of, you know, just floated through the 50s and everything was great and he was playing golf. It's like, no, he's he's ensuring civil rights. He's working for the promise of equality. And, again, for people to say, well, you didn't, you know, maybe you didn't work hard enough. Good Lord, man, how much do you have to do? You know, it literally told the armed services, you will integrate. 
I know Truman said we were going to do it, but you've been dragging your feet. No more foot dragging. You're going to do it, or I'm cutting your money off. Uh, he forced the integration of the armed services and said, this is not going to stand anymore. We are, we're going to have equality. Um, I would say Eisenhower as president laid the foundation for much of America as we know it today. Oh, very mm-hmm. much so, yeah. Yeah. We live in an Eisenhower vision of America. Yeah. Um, oh, and again, oh, by the way, he won a war. <laughs> uh, he's a... Again, not with, he doesn't have a ton of combat command experience, but he has all these varied experiences. Mm-hmm. He he well, he knows European leaders. He knows American leaders. Again, he he's an organizer. That's it. That's it. You have hit it really here. The leadership he has rises above the simple military doctrines that can be taught. Yes, and that's there's the difference between him and Patton. Patton could never do what Eisenhower did. And Patton actually was contemptuous, not of Eisenhower personally, they were friends, but of that entire general officer uh, mentality. But that's because he didn't understand the necessity of it. Yes. The only way, uh, and it says so in the movie Patton, you know, I, uh, I sitting here at the top trying to hold everything together. And uh, uh, with these, you know, they're all suspicious of each other. And he's got to be able to do that. The war will not be won, and if you have to put it to a tactical level, Without that. Yeah. And he, he mastered that brilliantly. That's why he was the right choice for that. Yeah. His experiences leading up to World War II <clears throat> basically were almost the perfect storm of commands and, and assignments because he worked in logistics. He worked in training. Uh, you know, he did all of these things that a, a good plan, and he was in planning. Uh, you know, the good officer, a good commander of such a force would need to have some experience in it. Now, you could make the argument that a good commander would just rely on a subordinate. Well, no. He's got to be able to evaluate Otherwise, there's no the vision. good. Yeah. And he's he's got that ability because he has been exposed to all of these things, even though he's never had that combat command. Uh, you know, while it's true there's no replacing that kind of experience, most commanders never get that prior to becoming... Yeah, high up. Just because we don't have wars that often, seems yeah. like we do now. But uh, yeah, you know. But it was something that that Montgomery was, you know, a little bit contemptuous of. Yeah. Didn't entirely, you know, grab onto the uh, Eisenhower wagon train. You know, he felt he didn't. He didn't experience combat in World War One. He's not had a combat command. Conversely, Montgomery, of course, was in a trench mm-hmm. in World War One. But what Eisenhower could do, and he impressed every commander he ever had, uh, from MacArthur to Marshall, uh, they all saw talent in him. They all saw saw ability in him, promoted him uh, uh, accordingly. But he knew people. Yes. He he, He worked with so many different people and was a was able to navigate these relationships differently than any other commander. Like you said, Patton couldn't have done it. No, no. Uh, he just didn't understand relationships in the same well, way. Well, it's the gift. Napoleon had the same gift, where no matter what was required to get the performance out of people under him, he could be that. He yes. could be the chameleon. He could be the hard-ass, or he could be your best friend. Whatever it took to motivate you, he saw it, knew how to do it, made it happen, and consequently... 
you know, rose to the pinnacle, to the heights because of it. Because he could get people to do for him consistently what needed to be done. Yeah. And that's, in a, in a supreme commander, that's, that's absolutely essential. And Eisenhower, during the war, is navigating personal relationships with Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. Douglas MacArthur, uh, George Marshall, <laughs> uh, uh, De Gaulle, okay. you know, Charles De Gaulle. When you think about the ability to move through those relationships... Many of which could despise the others. Oh, yes. Oh, and again, and Montgomery, and Patton, and... Um, Bradley. Bradley, and and these other uh, British allies, uh, the uh, Mallory... Yeah, you know, the Canadians, the Australians, yeah. I mean, any... I mean, this enormous coalition... <laughs> yeah, coalition's the best word. Politicians and soldiers and everything. He's moving between all of these people effectively. Yes, yes, because, you know, in the American system in particular, the British as well, the political pressure that comes from back home, which is often tone deaf to the needs of the battlefield. And can, vice versa. And vice versa, can be very, very difficult to navigate. And, and Eisenhower did it supremely. Dare I use that punning word? <clears throat> well, you know, I think one of the things that helped him, even though he didn't have that uh, battlefield command, uh, he was very much in tune with what warfare was going to look like. Yes. So he was instrumental in developing uh, tank doctrine yes. that would be later used. As a matter of fact, he was almost censured for his propos- proposal to, to develop that fast tank, fast attack tank uh, doctrine that, uh, you know, that Patton is so famous for. Mm. Because the generals at the time just wanted to use tanks in support of infantry. And they didn't see the, the promise in it. But yeah. Both Patton and Eisenhower were, in many respects, kindred spirits. Yes. They were. And they, that's why they were such friends. And, I, and if you read Patton's biography, biographers, uh, they ended up slightly hard feelings because Patton was relieved mm-hmm. by Eisenhower. But they still, even to the very end, they respected each other very, very well. And yeah, I mean... Patton respected Eisenhower, I think, far beyond Montgomery. Oh, there's no question. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, they're, they're, even, uh, Patton even when they had no the... contempt for him. He, he yeah. considered him a friend. He was hurt because of their friendship. But he also, as he as he says in the movie, I've been in the Army 30 years. If my commander gives me an order, I'm going to say, yes, sir, and do my damnedest to carry it out. That's just, that was his nature. Eisenhower had to think differently, though. His It was not about obeying orders at his level. It's about giving the right orders. Giving the right and that's orders, very different, and convincing politicians that they are the right orders. That it's the right orders, the right thing to do. Um, well, and that's the difference between uh, Patton and Eisenhower is also a function of the role they played. Patton didn't have to worry about that stuff, right? Because he was in the middle of it. He was in the the, yeah. the arena. He was where he needed to be because his strength was. That's where. And Eisenhower is deliberately putting him in a place where Patton can succeed. Yes, and not. Go beyond that and and end up failing. Right. Even when he doesn't use Patton, it's because of Patton's strengths. When he uses Patton as the feint at Calais, faking out the Germans because they think, well, of course they're going to attack with their best. Yeah. Well, they hold him back and attack with him later, which, of course, you know, it was a brilliant move because it paralyzed the Germans in one direction. Well, it was an amazing strategy, too, because you knew your, you know, Sun Tzu, know thy enemy, know thyself, you'll always be victorious. That's what they did. I mean, they recognized uh, that, and it also paid the double purpose of silencing the folks back home who were calling for Patton's head. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's a twofer, for goodness sakes. Uh, that's the brilliance of the man who was able to navigate these waters, recognize that there is a middle yeah. ground here. There is a way where we can win-win all the way through yeah. this. He's an organizer, a diplomat. He doesn't just know military. He knows people. Yes. And well, That's the basic recipe for good leadership. Yes. You have to know people. He knows people. And there's one particular act of Eisenhower during the war. Um, and I want to talk about everything. I mean, I want to talk about the war. I want to talk about his presidency. And we've, we've talked a little bit about all of those things. But there's one particular item during the war that to me shows how well Eisenhower understood humanity. Preach it, brother. Preach it. Understood people. In, a, in encountering the camps, he was so prescient in that he understood someday this is going to get tried to... Somebody's going to try to sweep this under the rug. He anticipated Holocaust denial before it even existed. Yeah. And he said, we're going to document every bit of this. I want cameras in here. I want every bit of this documented and photographed. Well, you know, it's... He knew. <clears throat> he just knew. Because, yeah, he understands human nature. And, and to be fair, human nature... Uh, for normal people, would almost that would almost have to be, for, especially for those that do not live it or it's not in their uh, cultural memory, that is something that is nearly impossible to believe. Yes. I mean, it's so outrageous that anybody, much less an entire country, yes. could orchestrate this on an industrial level, the elimination of 13 million undesirables. Yes. Industrial level. I like that word. That, yeah. that, Industrialized, that captures it very well. Yeah. Yes. Industrialized murder. Yeah. I mean, that's even today, it's hard to understand how a people could get there. That's why the weak-minded have to deny, because they can't conceive. Well, not, I don't think it's... I can't, I have a hard time conceiving it. I don't think of myself as, as weak-minded. It, uh, because I, I don't see how you make that well, leap. That's, that's, yeah, because that's I point. can't make that leap. Correct. And but that's your why you recognizes inst- the truth that there is there are certain things yeah. that we cannot. Well, partially because of. he did a good job of documenting. Well, that's correct. <laughs> that's right. But I mean, uh, there are others. The, the, the weak-mindedness comes from those who they, they can't. Well, those are the people who refuse to see what's going on around them at the time it's happening, as opposed to those who can't understand how you get to that point. Yeah, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it, and those who do study it are condemned to watch. Yes. Yes. Or as Mark Twain said, history may not. Uh, uh, repeat, but it certainly rhymes. That's right. <clears throat> so we that Mark Twain thing this month, aren't we? <laughs> hey, hey, he's mad. He is. But I, that, I wanted to make sure to, to draw that piece out because to me that it's, if nothing else, there's this incredible contribution to humanity, uh, to to human history, of making sure that got documented, and that's just again one piece of his accomplishments. And things that he, that he did, um, and I want to move from here, from the wartime Eisenhower, then to the president. You know, a lot of, of successful generals kind of get this, or people give them the bug to run for president. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk at the time about that. Yes, and he resisted a great deal of it. Uh, and, and he's not, again, he's not the only successful general coming out of the war. Marshall, no. yeah. MacArthur, they all are in the public eye. Mm-hmm. 
They're names that we still know. Yeah. Eisenhower, before he would do it, he wouldn't do it just because somebody wanted him to or because he wanted it. He had to have a why. Why should I run for president? And he finally got a why in that he believed strongly in the new international order that he had been a part of building. Sure. He believed in NATO. He believed in this idea of we need to build consensual governments across the world or otherwise we'll just be right back here again where we are now. Ironically, that's a Wilsonian idea, too. And they were very opposed to each other uh, on the political spectrum. Well, the idea is sound. Yeah. But Wilson... You know, not to get into a Wilson bashing, which you know is one of our favorite topics. We, we one of our favorite things to do is to uh, line up that Wilson pinata and start just, taking swings. That's oh, right, because there's so much candy to fall out of that. <laughs> Release the Kraken, boys! Come on, let's take a swing. But as it as are many who who are well, as many do, who have a good idea, a, a highfalutin ideal, as we might yeah. say. Okay, uh, they screw the pooch. By selling out everything around it, and end up not even getting not even getting that part yes, right. Yes, uh, because they they single mindedly focus on this one concept that is not the end; it should be the beginning. Yes, and so yeah, it's so you know it's it's a good idea, but it's a question of it was flawed uh, from the beginning. That's right. Uh, Wilson had an in- inadequate vision for the concept, whereas Eisenhower did, had an right, and that one. was his why. That's because right. he feared this this wing of the Republican Party led by Senator Taft, and I don't mean to denigrate Senator Taft, but it was a very isolationist. Let's go back well, to the pre-war. They're recognizing something that worked. That's, yeah, and, and it's like and, Eisenhower standing there, going, "No, no, no." Where that's that day is over. That that day is standing the, athwart history. Well, yeah, I mean that day is he, the he same. He lived as, the international world, for, you know, for all those years and recognized there's no going back. There's no going back, and that is something that Senator Taft couldn't see. That became his why. Okay, I've got a why now. I will run. Uh, Truman tried to talk him into running as a Democrat, and he just couldn't get there. Couldn't get there, even though he he didn't really roll back. A lot of Eisen, or a, a lot of Rooseveltian things. He didn't really roll back the New Deal, but he said, "No, I, I can't do where Truman is. I'm more where these guys are, with this exception of I'm going to do an international order and move away from this isolationism of the Taft wing, and thereby, tra- and thereby transformed the Republican Party. Yes, yeah, that the, all that that Taftian idea." Uh, by the time Eisenhower's finished, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, and, uh, and that's and that's still very much you know that was all uh, that's Rose that's Teddy Roosevelt and and William Howard Taft and Hughes and all those other Republicans in the early part of the century. They were very isolationist oriented. Well, They're, it's a common theme. It recurs. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, where we are now. You know, the Republican Party is very isolationist in in that uh, certain wings of it are very isolationist in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, and, and have been for some time. This brought in something very different that has stuck around. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't pushed out yeah. later. It was the the idea that the best defense is to be involved now. Yeah. Don't wait for everything to fall apart again, because we can't anymore. Right. The the, the, the stakes, stakes are too, too big. Yeah. The stakes are now well, too. The nuclear high. Uh, component is yes. one of the things, and firstly, certainly in Ike's mind, 
was very much that central. Yes, again, you know, he, it's very central to everything he's in, he's doing. Um, so I just I, I just the more I looked at all of this, the more it's like this this is a hero. This is a this is a man who didn't just play golf at Augusta and let everything happen. Right. He rode a wave of challenges unlike any anybody's ever faced and came out pretty darn successful. Well, and that's, Maybe and not 100%, and per, and per but that, pretty darn good. That's probably why he gets the reputation of not having done anything is because everything he did worked. Not everything, but mostly. Yeah. And, of course, you know, if, if, you're, if you're able to arrange the, the circumstances where you win by default... Of course, you've got time to play golf. That's stealing a little Sun Tzu there. But yeah. it, uh, it, it's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, he was so good at what he did, he was able to take the lead. Right. Down. Well, that was the theme of our last episode. Yeah. You know, in the Code of Honor. That's right. Uh, you know, there's some criticism of uh, he did really approach the presidency a bit like a general. You know, I got, I got subordinates, go talk to Congress. He didn't try to build a personal relationship then with Congress, which is kind of unusual because more of what he wanted. That's kind kind of the opposite way he had to go about doing things in Europe uh, as Supreme Allied Commander. He had to work work with all those people. But at the time, he wasn't the guy at the top either. Being a general, you know, maybe (laughs) he thought that if I'm at the top, I don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore because you know because even the even. Mrs. Eisenhower doesn't overrule uh, President Eisenhower. Yeah. Eisenhower yeah. You know, very famously, uh, he's really the first person to really put in front that chief of staff, that gatekeeper. Um, didn't, uh, never drove, and didn't even dial a phone. He always had somebody do things for him. Well, he was a supreme delegator. You yes. have to at that level. You yes. have to be able to do that. You have to trust people to do the right one. Surround yourself by the people that can yeah, that's just that's you pick the right people, uh, and that's really what it's all about is having the right people, if, and that's all it ever is. <laughs> well, it's a good spot for a break, so uh, let's do a first bourbon break, and then we'll do book break. How okay, we call it that. Um, so I poured a glass of Woodford here at Studio M. Yes, I'm working on a glass of Woodford as well. No, I'm still drinking the old tub, the old tub. Which actually was a brand that was around during Eisenhower's time, believe it or not. It's that old. It's been around. I mm. could have made a comment about somebody looking like an old tub, but I, I choose not to. Oh. Well, yeah, you could, but uh, I'd like to think none of us look that way. We're all still pretty svelte, right? No. I'm in no. shape. Round is a shape. Round is a shape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oblong is a shape. Pear is a shape. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Anyways, so, uh, it's, but again, we're, we're, we're drinking the, the good stuff, the stuff we, we like, you know. We, we haven't really gone out on a limb in a while, although the Quarter Horse Reserve, we need to, to, to do that Yeah, next. we need to hit another one of that. Well, yeah, we need to finish it off because it doesn't look like there's much left in that. Oh, there's there. half a bottle there, bro. Is there really? Yeah. Oh, well, the label hides that, I think. Yes. Um, but, you know, we need to do some more experimenting, I think. Because uh, I, I like to, to talk about different bourbons, just so we can compare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's time to go off the reservation, boys. Okay. Yes, it's coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, uh, you know, right in that direction. If if nothing else, when we get back to Studio R in the atrium, um, I've got a bottle of the Four Rows Small Batch. So this is a little bit higher end than the Four Rows we've been drinking. Oh. Uh, plus a small batch, seventeen ninety two. There you uh, go. Which Thank is you. one of our old 
standbys. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to be one of the uh, favorites that we had had, but haven't had a whole lot of lately. That's true. Uh, in quite a while. Uh, so we've got two, two unopened bottles. I don't know if they'll stay unopened by the time you guys make it over there to Studio <laughs> R. Um, although okay. if you come over to Studio R for uh, the next gathering, we can crack them open then. Like yeah, even if we don't make that, if, if they get open, just save a little bit of that Four Roses. Believe me, I have a hard time, you know, I need help getting through bottles yeah, of bourbon. Yeah, me too. Because I, I, I only drink with others. I, I mean, it's very rare that I will have a bourbon uh, by myself. Uh, I will on occasion. I'll have a beer occasionally on my, yeah. by myself. Really like the Yingling. Uh, that's yeah. A, that's a good one. Yep. Uh, I've got Land Shark Lager in the fridge that mm. I find pretty good. A little, a little mild, but pretty good and goes well with, with dinner. So, um, and as we've discussed, you know, I always like a glass of wine with a steak mm-hmm. if I can get that uh, worked on a weekend. Exactly. And, uh, but uh, here's to uh, Woodford and to Four Roses Small Batch and to Old Tub and, and Quarter Horse Reserve. That's Amen right. to that. Amen. Yes, that's right. We are, we are imbibing, so. So, um, listeners, honorites, the Wikipedia about Eisenhower is not bad, but if you really want to go a little bit deeper, of course, one of the standard works is Eisenhower, Soldier and President by Stephen Ambrose. Course, yes, again, we talked about him in our last episode. Yeah, yes. Ambrose, well known as a World War II historian, uh, has done a uh, a fairly thorough, well thought of one volume Eisenhower life. But the one that I really like is Eisenhower in War and Peace by Gene Edward Smith. Um, I like Gene Edward Smith. Again, I've got a grant by him as well. That's very very good. Um, but and and this one. This Eisenhower, it's tremendous. Um, and especially the Gene Edward Smith does talk about something that is a bit of a gap in the, um, the Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Um, the Wikipedia article never even mentions Kay Summersby. Which seems so very odd uh, uh, especially to not even as, mention it. Yeah, especially as much in the 21st century that we like to roll around in the stinky details of other people's lives, as yes. if we don't have enough stinky details in our own, um, you know, glass houses and all. But uh, uh, she's got her own Wikipedia. Yeah, Smith explores the relationship very thoroughly. Um, is it an affair? An emotional one, certainly. They were very emotionally attached. She was a confidant. He leaned on her emotionally a great deal. Was it a sexual one? Well, it's thought that Eisenhower's health was really so bad uh, by that point uh, that he's really not capable of an actual physical relationship. Um, But, uh, you know, when the war ends, he says, nope, that's it, Kay. I'm going home to Mamie. And that was the end of it. She had later written a book called My Love Affair with uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. But it was actually ghostwritten by somebody while she was dying of cancer. So there's a lot of contention as to whether or not the romance that she explicitly uh, uh, confirms was actually the ghostwriter or her. Yeah, it's her perspective of it. Uh, And even that doesn't say that they were sexually involved. Right. Yeah, she loved him. Maybe he... 
didn't really. Who knows? There's but, been a most biographers push back from going that far, and I'm afraid our salacious mindset, especially in this post uh, 21st century uh, thing where everything's about sex, we can't conceive the fact that that could be true. Yeah. You know. Uh, it, it, right, how could they spend that much time together and not, and, have, and sex? not, and not have sex? It's just, it's just well, it was also a time when, you know, the, the stereotype is that men at war are going to sleep around. Yeah, powerful men in particular. Yeah, it's yes. powerful men in particular. So, you know, there's a lot of things that make you think, well, of course it's true. But at the time, nobody would seem to own up with, yeah, no. that. But that could also be yeah. people protecting a reputation. Yeah. Not unlike Kennedy and Roosevelt. Yes. You know, a lot of the Kennedy stuff doesn't really come out until after his death, even though it's kind of well known mm-hmm. uh, prior. Yeah. But uh, certainly he relied on her emotionally. He needed a confidant, someone he could trust um, that was outside of all these powerful figures he's working with. But uh, um, again, he smoked uh, pretty much his whole life, uh, his, his heart was a wreck. Uh, by the time he's... Uh, right, he had had a heart attack, too, I think, uh, during his presidency. Yes, uh, heart attacks and even a stroke during his presidency. Um, stomach problems as well. Um, so he had a surgery for that. Um, his health was, was poor, and it was kind of... Oh, no, he's in great shape kind of thing in 56 yeah, for his re-election. That's not generally known. So, uh, like, well, of course, you know, there's precedent for that. I mean, uh, Roosevelt and his polio was well concealed, even yes. though it was known. It wasn't, uh, it, he had to fight, and I don't remember which re-election, I think it was his first one in particular. He had to really fight with the, uh, back from the push of, he's not healthy enough to be president type yeah. thing. Uh, and, of course, Wilson, for God's sakes, I mean, he's basically, for the last part of his term, he's, he's a shadow puppet, a sock puppet. Uh, and his wife was basically running the government, which is, right. you know, that's how we got uh, 25th <laughs> Amendment, <laughs> is because yes. of that. Yes. Which, you know, that's not saying that's a bad thing. Not at all. No, it was, but, you know, you don't fix, you know, you don't Honestly, fix she the, probably made a better president than he did. Well, yeah. Uh, that's not, a not lot. how it was supposed to work, though. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not. Not a lot happened when she was uh, running things, which, to be honest, that's a good thing. Well, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, because we we are all of the bent that you know the less the feds are involved with things, the better. Uh, as a general rule, yeah. obviously there are things that, that the federal government can and should do, but not necessarily all that they actually do. Amen to that. <laughs> I would yeah. say that is true at the state level too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, again an Eisenhower. Uh, by Am- Stephen Ambrose and Eisenhower and War and Peace by Gene Ambert Smith. Strongly recommended by Martin. I'm sure these two guys have probably read some stuff on Eisenhower as well. Or It's been a while. I remember reading a uh, biography of Eisenhower, gosh, uh, high school maybe, maybe even grade school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was very struck with uh, the story. Uh, it was, did a really good job of telling the story about him. Yes, uh, covered a lot of the uh, the, the pre-war, war, you know, and by pre-war I mean World War One, uh, the home life, uh, the the incredible disappointment not getting to go to France, uh, yeah. and all that, and some of the you know the mid-war uh, uh, life is a very midwestern. Yeah, uh, this this whole midwestern middle class, middle very middle. I mean, class. he was very American in that sense. He was a quintessential typical 
uh, background. Not a typical quintessential man because he was obviously more than that. Yeah, yeah he, he he had a talent that was unmatched yeah, in many yeah. respects. He was gifted in so many ways, in ways that were not as obvious. You know, you look for the gifted uh, commander on the field. That's not his gifts, and thank God for that because. We but it's also rare that a man who a man can rise to be supreme allied commander pick up a fifth star and yet never really have that that kind of battlefield experience that most generals are going to have uh, to, who are going to attain that kind of rank you know Patton obviously had it uh, of course he was lucky got to France mm-hmm. so he could say he had some battlefield experience prior MacArthur had an enormous enormous amount of experience probably the most experienced field commander that ever sat at his level and right. yet he was absolutely he was dangerous in many respects. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and he uh, he had to be tightly reined in to the point where Truman fired his big old butt. Well, you know, he was uh, all that was bad about Patton was in uh, tended to be active in MacArthur mm-hmm. and unrestrained, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably you know it's not saying MacArthur was a bad man or a bad general, but. He also was one of those guys that thought he could do no wrong. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he believed his own publicity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so let's do a little sum up here. We're at 45 minutes. Yeah, that's wow, right. that was quick. Bring so, that baby home there. So, so this is a quote from historian John Lewis Gaddis that summarizes this, uh, this more recent scholarship about uh, Eisenhower and especially his presidency. Uh, Historians have long ago abandoned the view that Eisenhower's was a failed presidency. He did, after all, end the Korean War without getting into any others. He stabilized and did not escalate the Soviet-American rivalry. He strengthened European alliances while withdrawing support from European colonialism. I didn't even mention that part. Um, He rescued the Republican Party from isolationism and McCarthyism. He maintained prosperity balanced the budget, promoted technological innovation, facilitated the civil rights movement, and warned in the most memorable farewell address since Washington's of a military-industrial complex that could endanger the nation's liberties. Not until Reagan would another president leave office with so strong a sense of having accomplished what he set out to do. Amen, brother. I and, that, uh, that nails it. Yeah, and, and I find that there's a, a parallel with Reagan that was very striking as well. Uh, Eisenhower's mother was religious. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I was just and, reading that, yeah. And invited, uh, or the Eisenhower home became kind of the meeting home, mm-hmm. the, the meeting place. For an early iteration of Jehovah's Witnesses. And, of course, if you... Which he was not. Yeah, he was not. But if you know Reagan, then you know also his mother was highly religious. Yes. And was also someone who was involved, didn't just go, but was like involved in church. Right. And and brought Reagan into that idea. Yeah, the idea of working together for the community. Yeah. And it's it, it brought in. Well, bringing yeah. people into her home in the same way Eisenhower's yeah, mother hospitality. did. Hospitality. It's, it's yeah. Also, that, that helps instill a strong moral sense of right and wrong. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So I found that pretty striking. So re-examine Eisenhower, rediscover. Yeah, don't just Eisenhower. take him for granted because he's close enough for many of our lives that we don't. We kind of skip over it. We talk about him as the general, but forget about him as the president. He, oh, he was the guy in the fifties, and that's all. 
sticks with yeah. us. Yeah, again, that whole notion of... Well, he had the, the, as far as legacy goes, he had the misfortune of not presiding over a disaster uh, for him to overcome to cement his presidency. He did that pre-presidency <laughs> by helping win World War II, which is why we, you know, why most people think of him, well, maybe not most people, but why that is such a prominent factor in how we think about him. You know, when you think about presidents and, and uh, how we look at them, uh, we look at them one of two ways, uh, by how they leave office, mm-hmm. uh, because often that last year defines the presidency right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, yes, you're yeah. exactly correct. Or by what they manage to, some massive thing they manage to accomplish or overcome. And, or screw up. Or screw up. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, the knife cuts on both sides. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, you know, Jimmy Carter had the misfortune of, of screwing up both sides of that the last year and uh, screwing things up while he was in office. So, you know, that's why he's at the bottom of those rankings uh, or very near the bottom, depending on who does them. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he, you know, because things went very well, that's why I think people have a hard time seeing him as somebody who did anything. Yeah. Because when things are going well, the guy at the top doesn't always get the credit. It looks kind of effortless when you right. kind of know what you're doing. And Especially work. when you play golf. Yeah. And, and again, overshadowed by the pathos of the very, Kennedy administration. Very good word, this, sir. This yes. energetic life cut short. Um, so he, he gets forgotten. But rediscover Eisenhower. Yeah, because of the age difference and the generational difference, uh, that there seems to be a clear-cut definition of change. It's kind of false. Eisenhower doesn't deserve to be exactly. relegated into pre-modernity because of exactly. that. Exactly. Very much a modern man. Very much so. That's correct. And, and a man who understood the modern world and shaped the modern world. Again, promoted science education, promoted science. You know, one thing we didn't talk about that uh, maybe is a good thing to, to leave with because it's what he left with uh, leaving his presidency. And that's warning about the entanglement with the... Uh, the powers of the, the military-industrial complex. And today, that's easy to recognize what that is. In the late 50s, you know, 1960, when he left office, that probably would have been, it's like, what is he even talking about? Mm-hmm. But it was that 10-year, well, probably that, you talk about that 15-year time period between the end of the war and 1960, uh, the military-industrial complex never really ramped down like after other wars. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Too the car money. factories went back to producing cars. But we didn't go back down to a small standing army. And when you don't have a small standing army, you need stuff. Mm-hmm. And that means you're buying a lot of stuff from a lot of corporations and manufacturers. Mm-hmm. That gives them political clout. No, yeah. The Cold War still was uh, alive. That's, that's Right, it that's, was at the beginning of the Cold War, yeah, so... so that was a generating force that was enabled these this thing to yeah. not f- yeah. not be pulled back, not to fade away. But the world's to stay different. In, yeah. You've, yes, we're at peace, but there's suddenly this new adversary. You know, and that's always the most dangerous one: the adversary who used to be your best friend. Right, and I think the warning about that is not just, um, you know, a, a political warning. I think what it is. Is is a kind of a societal warning in the sense that um, you you shouldn't let this one segment of what is necessary 
become the driver of all other things. And that's, I think, a sentiment that is true in all times. Mm -hmm. uh, you can make an argument about that for a ton of different programs that tend to wag the dog, uh, so to speak. <laughs> yes, well uh, said. You know, depending on the time period you're talking about. And I think the danger is letting one of those things that the government is responsible for become the primary purpose in driving all the rest of the policies. Because it's a, it's a myopic view. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the better point. Now, he was obviously warning about a specific, but I think the lesson there is you can apply that more than just the military-industrial complex. Uh, well said, brother. Well said. Well, fellas, thank you very much. Uh, that was, a, I think, a very super uh, well-done rediscovery of Dwight Eisenhower. That uh, I, I, I doubt that an appreciation of him is is percolating through society much anymore. Maybe we can do a little something about that with this episode. Amen, brother. Absolutely. All right. So, Francis, buddy, what's next time? Oh, my gosh. We're going to pull off these papers and party, boys. We're going to do something we've never done before. Somehow we've managed to avoid talking about music all this time. And probably because that's one of the areas where we are the most diverse and uh, we don't blend much with that. We all love music in different ways. I'm going to treat that as a strength and see what all we can bring to it and see. Let's talk about music, why good music is good music is good music, regardless of genre, and talk about some of those things, that those universalities that, yeah, they did it well. We're going to talk about that next episode. Be here. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. <laughs>